0: Brown building is critical, always been critical. That's why when you sell a company, the concept of goodwill has actual tangible value because Pete's Barbecue on the corner of 3rd and Main has been there for 35 years. Everybody loves Pete's Barbecue. You want to change it to Susie's Bait Shop or something else, you're going to lose everybody that used to come to that corner. So you have to be very careful when you've got a great brand that you don't mess it up. But if you don't yet, you got to put some time and energy into building the brand. Make sure the brand is associated with your service and the brand's associated with your products, even if you're selling other people's products, so that your brand represents the value of you and the way you're presenting goods and services to the market. You do that, repeat that, it's an investment that'll pay off. It'll pay off in real dollars, it'll pay off in more business.
1: Welcome to the Midland Money Mindset. This is a podcast that's all about getting your mind right when it comes to all things money. In every episode, we go deep with engaging guests who provide tangible takeaways and a whole lot of joy along the way. I hope you enjoy these conversations as much as I enjoyed having them. Let's dive into today's show. I'm Larry Sprung, your host for the Midland Money Mindset and founder and wealth advisor of Midland Financial. Today's guest is Marty Strong, retired Navy SEAL officer and combat veteran we thank him for his service. Currently, he's an author, a practicing CEO, and chief strategy officer. Marty started off as a Navy SEAL and after 20 years joined UBS as an investment professional. During this time, he focused on high net worth individuals and found 75% of his clients were self-made entrepreneurs, and half of them had no college education. Marty learned key entrepreneurial lessons about what business leadership and success look like and what attributes are shared by highly successful people. Ultimately, he left the financial services industry to build and lead rapidly scaling companies. This involved defining market value, working with M&A professionals, and buying or selling business units or companies. In addition, he focuses on organizational design and scaling strategies to meet demand, or new external challenges to doing business. Marty is currently the CEO of four companies within an ESOP enterprise structure and serves on two corporate boards. Marty writes about his experiences and insights in his book, Be Nimble, How the Creative Navy SEAL Mindset Wins on the Battlefield and in Business. The sequel, Be Visionary, Strategic Leadership in the Age of Optimization is set for release in December 2022. Listen in for some great takeaways about leadership and how Marty has turned lessons from the battlefield into his daily practices at the businesses he serves. Well, hello, everybody. Larry Sprung here, and I have the distinct pleasure of being with Marty Strong, retired Navy SEAL officer and combat veteran, And currently, he's an author and a practicing CEO and Chief Strategy Officer. Welcome to the show, Marty. Hey, how you doing, Larry? Doing great. Thanks for asking. And before we jump in here and have a great conversation, first and foremost, thank you so much for your service. I am very appreciative of our veterans and those that are currently serving. It's something that just wasn't in my DNA. So I have a great appreciation for those who have done that and are currently doing that for us in our country. So thank you for that. Thank you. So I know a lot about you, but I want to introduce you to our audience. And can you tell us a bit about who you are and your path to how you got to where you are
0: today? Sure. So the short story is a lot of different stories because I have kind of a non-linear history. I'm very focused on strategic planning and project planning and Six Sigma and a lot of other things. Ironically, I leap through opportunity windows, and it takes me in, in kind of weird ways, but it's been a good life so far. So I started as a kid in Nebraska, divorced kids. My brothers and sisters, we all wanted to get the heck out of the family situation, get away from Nebraska. So I joined the Navy, and I joined the Navy to become a radar air traffic controlman. And through a mistake of orders after 17 weeks of school, I ended up in Coronado, California for underwater demolition SEAL training. You know, I eventually found out why the mistake happened many, many years later when I got to see the archives and see my personal record and everything. But at the time, I didn't know why the mistake was made. And at 17 years old, 125 pounds, soaking wet, they talked me into staying and trying it. That was kind of like the first window. I was an enlisted SEAL for 10 years. I was an officer for 10 years. So I did 20 altogether. And towards the end, I decided I was going to become a lawyer. So I took the LSAT and got all my transcripts all bundled up. By then, I had an undergrad and a graduate degree in business. And then a SEAL that had just retired found out I was going to go to law school as soon as I got out, came, grabbed me for lunch, two hours, talked me out of it, and talked me into getting into the financial services industry. And that's how I ended up the like, next seven and a half years after retired, managing money, second window. So that's kind of the way the story goes. And now I was a consultant in there after I left uh, UBS as a portfolio manager. And then I ended up with a couple of large defense companies, initially with market development and then business development, and then strategy for multiple different divisions and companies. Then I ended up with a small company as uh, an equity partner. I also offered a position and an equity piece. And we grew that from a very small company with uh, 40 employees. And now that's evolved into an employee stock owned plan or an ESOP, about a thousand employees all in, three different companies. So this is my 13th year as the CEO and chief strategy officer of that last shop. And somewhere along the line, I started writing novels and business books.
1: Amazing. Amazing. Quite the career. So I think that we hear a lot of times that veterans and those that serve have a tendency to make great employees and parts of companies and entrepreneurs just because of their DNA, right? Because of their being methodical and having routines, et cetera. So How do you apply being a successful SEAL officer to business management? How have you made that kind of transition? And how have you used that as a tool to help you progress?
0: Well, you're right. There's a lot of attributes associated with the military. The stick-to-itiveness, loyalty, commitment to the team, commitment to a higher purpose, mission focus, a lot of behaviors and characteristics that anybody in the commercial market would love to have in any capacity, whether it's a lower-level employee, somebody that's going through a training program, or even in management. Myself and a lot of other SEALs are working with different organizations to try to bridge the problem of making that a reality, which is really it's the shock when the SEAL, and it could be a fighter pilot, it could be any elite person in the military, when they step out of uniform and they're at the top of their game. And if you haven't seen the new Top Gun, think of the guys in that movie, and suddenly they're not that anymore. They're trying to find a job. Okay. one minute they're flying around Mach 3, next minute they're they're trying to explain a line in their resume. It's humbling. And in some cases, it's demeaning and trying to get their self-esteem, their self-image kind of over the hump and get into the apprentice mode again. Because then you can kind of trigger that drive, that focus again. Say, look, how long did it take you to become a pilot? How many years before you were a really good pilot? How many years? How many years before you got to see combat? Guess what? Same thing on the outside. But all those things that made you great at that will make you great again. You just have to learn whatever the new is. So we do a lot of work with that. I didn't have anybody talking to me about it. I thought I was going to get out and do this real academic stock picking thing. And what hit me was that I didn't know anything about sales because I had to find my own clients. And it was all commissions and fees, no salary after the initial training. And that was a shock because I had 20 years of paycheck just showing up. So I succumbed to all those emotions that I just described, just like everybody that's having those emotions now, getting out of uniform. But what I found was, and you probably have some insight to this too. My clients needed leadership. They needed leadership. They needed stability and leadership for me. They needed somebody they could trust to be calm in the storm. So, like when the 2000 market crash happened in the NASDAQ, I didn't run out the door and hope the phones would stop ringing. You know, I started proactively calling everybody. That's where I really started realizing that a lot of the things that I learned in the SEAL teams about leadership, both as an enlisted and at leader and as an officer, that's when they were really gold, crisis, panic, chaos. That's when those kinds of warriors, those kinds of leadership ethos, all of a sudden you're standing there when everybody's looking around for somebody to say what exit to take. And that's when the light bulb came on. And I think I've been able to apply it pretty much ever since.
1: Interesting. Yeah. As you were telling that story, we've had more folks on our show from the sports profession than we have from your field, but obviously much different careers, but very similar, right? You have a professional athlete who trained all their life and working towards being an athlete, and then all of a sudden they retire or their career comes to an end, and they have that similar identity crisis. And it's a similar conversation, right? You can't just expect to hang up the skates or hang up the cleats or put the baseball bat aside, whatever the sport may be, and then go into another profession and all of a sudden think that you're going to be an all-star when it's something that's brand new took you years and years to become that professional athlete, same thing. And I think it's a similar mental struggle in terms of getting over that hump and getting into, as you say, civilian life and civilian world for those roles.
0: Yeah. And there's another element to it. If you're at the top of your game, you're in a constant state of optimizing your performance. You're trying to maintain the edge or improve the edge. I don't care what you are, whatever profession that demands a very, very high level of performance. So what are you doing morning, noon, and night, twenty four seven, three sixty five? 365? What you're not doing is you're not sitting back and trying to plan your future. You're not trying to build your resume. You're not trying to go to college and pick up another skill set. And that's the problem with both high-end competitive athletes and people in the military and very elite forces like the SEALs. They run right up to that day. They step out of the gate at the base and they go, now what? Without any forethought because they weren't going to, they were all in. All the time.
1: Yeah. Listen, I grew a greater appreciation for folks like you, the SEALs, when I read the book, The Operator, about, I forget his first name, O'Neill, who was, I guess, the lead, Rob. Robert O'Neill, who was the lead guy in taking down Osama bin Laden. And it went through very detail of the training. So, one thing that I know is SEALs are really known for and trained for their ability to handle incredible amounts of stress. If anything, that's paramount to what you guys do. Is it something that any leader can learn to do in terms of dealing with and managing and utilizing that stress for good?
0: Yes. My first book, Leadership Book, Being able to came out January this year. That was the point of the book, was to explain that it's all teachable and it's missing. I mean, yes and yes, because management doesn't think like military leaders do. They're not forcing and directing lower-level management, middle management, upper-level management, to groom and prepare their replacements. They're not trying to set up scenario-based training about worst-case situations. They're not doing contingency planning drills, all the things that you do in the special ops, right? Because if they did all those things, the different levels of leaders and the technical followers would have been practiced and exercised and kind of warmed up to a lot of different crazy things that might happen. And what are we going to do when that happens? It's just like a fire drill. And it's amazing when I talk to companies and I consult or I give a speech or something, Everybody's like, yeah, we don't do that here. Everybody waits for it to happen. The meteorite hits, and then we all stare at each other. And whatever your emotional response to that crisis moment is through the entire organization, that's what you get. It's not preventable, so you can't stop the meteorite. But your reaction to the meteorite can be focused and controlled and groomed and choreographed to include the creativity of it's changed everything like the pandemic. Everybody get in a room, we're going to reinvent the company. That's just not something that's taught. So it, it takes a long time for people to get out of all those other ineffective, inefficient, wasteful emotions, sometimes months, sometimes a year. I think in the case of COVID, some companies just, well, it'll go away. We don't change anything. Right,
1: right. So what I'm hearing is it's really just a skill set in order to be able to handle that pressure. It's something you have to practice and learn over time. So when it does happen, you're prepared, more or less.
0: And that's probably what Rob and every other SEAL has ever written about. The SEAL selection process and the ongoing advanced training process is based on. It's a constant escalating series of scenarios scripted and storyboarded in a way to squeeze the maximum amount of learning experience at every level technical level with a tool a weapon a radio a boat a submarine whatever but also all the psychological components changing things up you know flipping the script adding five days suddenly all kinds of stuff so that you become very comfortable with the uncomfortable and you realize the way you get out of it is you become very nimble and creative you become humble clear your mind and start solving the problem right away because anything else is a waste of time.
1: Right, and from my understanding, the training that you guys go through really ends up, culminates with the crucible event in Navy SEAL training, and that's like Hell Week. So question to you is, what did you learn from surviving Hell Week? And what did that experience teach you about yourself and others? I'm sure a lot of that is still ingrained and utilized today. So what did that process
0: and that culmination teach you? It's a good question. Put it in context, even get to the BUDS course. It takes about a year, and there's about 500 people on average that are screened to pull out 100 to 125 starting students. So there's already been a cut. And out of those 120 to 125, the average since 1962 has been 75% are gone at graduation day. My class was no different. We started with 126, ended up with 13 originals. So the crucible you're talking about specifically, Hell Week, is actually in the fifth or sixth week, depending historically where you look, because they moved it a couple of times. And they've already gone through probably losing half their class at that point. So 500 became, say, 120. 120 became 60. Then you start Hell Week. So you've already got like two levels of survivors, and they get through that week. And usually about half to a third of the class are either injured, get sick, or quit during Hell Week. It's five weeks of sleep deprivation, constantly moving with dumb things like boats and logs. And it's just mindless movement. The point of the exercise is to psychologically start the conversation in each student's head because it's an individual decision. It's a volunteer program. So now you ask me what I learned. I don't remember learning anything. I was 17. I just basically did what everybody told me to do. One day I looked up and they were handing me a certificate. I came back eight years later and I was the chief petty officer in charge of that first phase of training. And I saw 17 hell weeks between that and a second tour as an officer. And that's where I learned everything that I just told you. I mean, I didn't realize it was an experiment. I didn't realize it was choreographed. I didn't realize it was a psych. The goal was a psychological state of mind where the voice in your head said, this isn't for you. You made a mistake. So the bottom line from that, the takeaway is you don't want to listen to the voice in your head. You want to be the voice in your head. You want to drive the narrative.
1: So you did learn something, maybe after the fact, later yeah, on, but yeah. in retrospect, but either
0: way. I learned how to describe it later, yeah.
1: I guess in the midst of that whole scenario, you just want to get through it. You're not really thinking about lessons that no. could stick with you for the rest of your life. You just want to no. make it to the end, more or less.
0: You're putting one foot in front of the other. Yeah, yeah. And that's what you're basically telling yourself in your head. I think the guys that get through Hell Week, and very rarely do you lose anybody after Hell Week. At any stage, you've got the raw material, the people that have the resilience that are going to make it the rest of the way and be very, very trainable and probably very successful as a SEAL. But what you do is you basically say to yourself, I'm not going to let this beat me. And you wake up every morning sore, beat up all kinds of problems, and you look at the guys next to you, and you can see in some of their eyes, they're already halfway through that conversation figuring out how they're going to get out of there. Right, And you start to learn it, and when you're an instructor, you see it all the time, but I got to stay away from that guy, <laughs> because he's going to try to talk me into agreeing with his voice.
1: Misery loves company, right? They do. <laughs> most
0: of the time, people quit in groups,
1: Yeah, a little close. And I think so. to your point, and what we're talking about today, and we're going to jump into some business aspects of it, a lot of this is business-oriented, too. You can relate back, because as you're telling these stories, I'm thinking controlling the network narrative, for example. That's something a company should do internally and externally, right? We should be almost uh, prepared and writing that script and expecting those things. And from a standpoint of being able to tell ourselves what we want to hear or what we should be hearing, rather than taking the information in and filtering it out, which causes other harms in other areas. So I think there's a huge relevancy there for sure. A lot of our listeners are in business, entrepreneurs starting a business, maybe looking to grow it or growing it, looking to scale it. And that's something you've been very successful at. So what tips do you have for those entrepreneurs, business owners that are looking to scale small to early stage companies and really go into the growth mode with them?
0: Other than read, be nimble, which addresses scaling up and scaling down. And the focus of the book is about basically the kinds of companies you just described, the ones that don't show up in most books, which are textbooks about Fortune 500 and Fortune 50 companies. And there's no value for a small company, a startup, early stage company. I want to wanna... get
1: there. I'm not there yet.
0: <laughs> yeah. And then there's the other crisis is trying to get from early stage. You think you've made it. Now I want to get a midsize business. I just talked to somebody a week ago. And he's extremely successful, quadrupled his annual revenue. And he's also probably tripled his staff. And he's never had that many people under him. So now he's got to learn human resources management. He's got to learn the price of talent. He's got to decide whether he wants to insource, outsource, or as one of my friend Bob Bazzini and I were talking one time, is full-time, part-time, or sometime. <laughs> all these different things that, one, they don't teach them very well in schools because they're not thinking about entrepreneur startups and everything. And two, you aren't going to pick it up from your friend across the street that just happens to have a job unless he's in management or at some level has dealt with this. My advice is to find people that have already been in business, find people that are already running business. Doesn't have to be the same. If you sell socks and shoes, find a restaurant owner. A lot of these are very classic principle issues. Things like don't overextend yourself, don't hire too many people. And nowadays, which is, is very comfortable, try to gig out as much as you can rather than bring in full-time help with benefits. Not because you're an evil capitalist, but because I can get, and you know this, I mean I can crowdsource and anybody can crowdsource and get access to the top designer in Sweden and bid the whole thing out and see what they'll charge compared to somebody else, use them for a short amount of time, and then they're gone. You get top help, top support, top talent, focus, but you don't have an HR issue, you don't have an org structure change, and you don't have a lot of the other costs. Think about it. That's what contracting building homes is all about. The efficiency of managing all these different trades and the street smarts of picking people that are going to do what they say on schedule to standard. And then the cost of that bid into your bid that you won to build the building and still end up with a profit. That's the perfect metaphor for almost any business.
1: I I agree. I think there's a lot of value there. If I'm a leader, how do I create long-term value in a company or organization that I lead? What are some things, very tangible things that I should be thinking about or doing in order to increase the long-term value of my organization? So if your
0: goal is long-term, that's the first thing you have to ask yourself. Most of the people I talk to even if they've been in business for five to 10 years, they want to talk to me about, like, say, scaling. And I say, so what's your strategy? What's your end goal? What's your end game? It's a lifestyle business. It pays for the insurance or something. I mean, I need to know where you're heading so we can work back to where you are so I can answer your question to get back to where you're heading. And nine times out of 10, some of these are big companies. They just look at me and say, well, we basically just chase KPIs every week and every month. We just focus on that. I just focus on what's in the cash register at the end of every week. So it's important for anybody in answering that question to be able to say what I want to be. Because if, if all I want is a lifestyle company, that's a goal. That's fine. That's a state. That's a business model. And you don't have to be really, really aspirational. Some things like that are compatible with being aspirational and building something, maybe a sell at some point down the road, and a lifestyle business is something like brand building. Brand building is critical, always been critical. That's why when you sell a company, the concept of goodwill has actual tangible value because Pete's Barbecue on the corner of 3rd Main has been there for 35 years. Everybody loves Pete's Barbecue. You want to change it to Susie's Bait Shop or something else, you're going to lose everybody that used to come to that corner. So you have to be very careful when you've got a great brand that you don't mess it up. But if you don't yet, you got to put some time and energy into building the brand. Make sure the brand is associated with your service and the brand's associated with your products, even if you're selling other people's products, so that your brand represents the value of you and the way you're presenting goods and services to the market. You do that, and repeat that, it's an investment that'll pay off. It'll pay off in real dollars, it'll pay off in more business.
1: I agree, and I think that we talk about planning first a lot here, and it's hard to build something or work towards something if you don't know what that end goal is. So I was talking to somebody earlier today, and we were like, how do you tell if an entrepreneur is successful or not? You know, is there an easy way to tell? And I said, it's really not an easy thing because you could have two entrepreneurs that at first glance, one may be a lifestyle business or a lifestyle practice, and one may be $5 million organization. And there's no way to tell if one's more successful than the other because the lifestyle brand, he might want to be a lifestyle practice. He may have huge profit margins and be very happy with the hours and the time and the effort he's putting in or she's putting in. To them, they're successful versus the $5 million firm. They may not be as profitable and they could or may not be more successful. So it's really in the eyes of the person who's running the business to make that decision. Not me, right? Not you. It's, are you hitting the goals and the objectives that you want to hit? And if so, then it's a success, right?
0: It is. And talking to people that own businesses, of all kinds of different sizes and shapes and levels, they kind of like the elite athlete and Navy SEAL thing we were talking about before. They turn and burn 20 years. I've got a friend that had a restaurant, had a bankrupt one restaurant, got kind of cheated out of another restaurant, then had a restaurant for 35 years. When do you think he actually started to think about his exit, his life after the restaurant? Like never. Right. Just like the SEALs and the professional Just athletes. Just the way
1: he is and knows what to do. That's all he knows. He was
0: all in, in there at four o'clock, looking at everything. He was the restaurant. It was the brand of the restaurant. And you run into people like that. And then they, all of a sudden, somebody tells them they should sell. And they think, oh, I should have a plan to sell. And you have to ask them a lot of questions. It's not really therapy or psychology, but in a way it is. It's, okay, let's talk about the why of this. Let's start going through a why drill. Every time they say something, I'd say why. and You kind of get down to the core thing, and then they realize, I don't want to retire. I like doing what I'm doing. Well, then don't listen to the people who are telling you you're screwing up by not selling. On the other side, if you really, really want to sell, and you don't either understand how to build a business for that, or you don't understand the metrics in your market, your industry your peer group for that like what's the EBITDA and what's the right multiple and all those things you have to become a student so then it's easy to help let's take what you have let's use a standard market metric for valuation this is how much it's worth right now without any kind of adjustments and et etc all right this is your starting point now how do we improve this there are mechanical ways to improve both market multiple and the EBITDA which is essentially you know the money value of the formula and you build a plan and you attack that because that's how people buy businesses every business there's a mechanical, practical way immediately put a battle plan together to add value if that's the legitimate end state that you're looking for.
1: There you go. So I would imagine culture within the SEAL team itself, once you are selected and now you have your remaining, whatever, 13, 15 SEAL team members, I would imagine that culture is very important within that group and within the SEAL team in general. So how do you create that similar winning culture in businesses that you lead? Are, are there some go-to principles that you should think about instituting or utilizing within your organization to kind of replicate and have that similar
0: culture? It's very difficult to replicate what you just described because of a couple of factors. One, I told you with the vetting screening processes for SEALs, by the time a SEAL is pretty much considered combat-ready. It's about two years after he started the BUDS process. And there's estimates that that's about $2 million per SEAL invested. Now think about that for a second. Now you put together, and they keep changing the configurations of the smallest units. There were 14 men during Vietnam, Then there were 16 men during the 80s and 90s, and they went to, I think they might be around 20. Let's just stick with 20. You've got 20 times $2 million if all 20 people were brand new, out-of-the-box, freshly minted SEALs with a two-year training background. But that's not the way the 20 guys are broken out. Those 20 guys are broken out with all kinds of levels of experience, maturity, and tenure that represent a lot more than $2 million. That's all taxpayer money. So it's great for guys like me, guys were in work I was in, to talk about the team and the brotherhood and the camaraderie and all that stuff. But that's how we did it, first off. And people were screened for the willingness to be part of something bigger, and to work with other top professionals competitively, which is kind of an oxymoron. If you want to be a winner, you want to be a winner. So think of it now in the context of the commercial market. You got all these people coming out of business school and everything. You think they're saying, I can't wait to get into a company where I can bond with other people in a team so we can all competitively rise as a team and as a company and be successful. Are they thinking, I'm a tiger and I'm going to grab the world by the tail and I'm going to get in there and I'm going to show my worth and I'm going to start moving up the ladder. So we're training people at the higher end who eventually go into management to be almost predatory opportunists that are trying to figure out a way to get stronger and better. It doesn't mean they're not trying to do a good job. It's just their personal goal is to achieve personally. And then you have everybody below that, the technical expertise that are coming in, they're looking for a way to pay their bills, like work to be a pleasant experience. They don't want to go to work and be miserable every day. They don't necessarily see any value in working an 80-hour work week for the team, <laughs> Right. So that's the reality and trying to get one reality of the SEAL teams to convey over to this reality I just described in the commercial world after 20 years of doing this in the commercial world is an extreme challenge because I can't vet the personalities come in coming into my companies to that extent. Now, what I can do is I can try to get the HR people and everybody that are screening and vetting and eventually onboarding first, measure twice, then cut once to get somebody in. There's a whole lot of cultural stuff they have to confirm. They have to be willing to work with other people, willing to be a follower. They have to be willing to go into project work and not just want to work in cubicle number six and have their stack of work to do and then go home. Uh, They have to be willing to flex time and surge when a small company has to react positively or negatively, all hands on deck, as they would say in the Navy. And if they say yes to all that and they seem to interview out like that, great. Then you get them to onboarding and then you reinforce the reasons for these inquiries and these lines of questions because they need to know that what they're getting into is a matrix organization with a focus on creating bench strength across all the different disciplines. Eventually, first within the disciplines, like all the accountants can do each other's work to some level after they've been there six months. And then eventually the accountants can actually come in and help with pricing for bids over with the sales guys kind of thing. That way, if anybody leaves or gets hit by a car and retires, the whole section doesn't collapse like a badly built deck outside. That's how you do it. At least that's how I've been trying to do it.
1: The SEALs clearly have a competitive advantage in this area versus actually being able to execute it in commercial world. It could be done, but you don't have the same tools, essentially. It's not a level playing field is what I'm hearing.
0: It can be done, and it also can be taught to management teams by somebody who knows what it looks like, smells like, and feels like. Kind of the quack like a duck expert. So...
1: Yeah. All right. So listen, the world's changing faster than ever before, obviously, in the last several years with COVID and everything else that uh, being thrown at the world at current. How does a CEO or a leader keep up with their given markets or the competition? Are there certain things that they need to do or they should be aware of? Or is it simple as we spoke about earlier, kind of practicing for these moments so that they know how to read and react so that it's not, oh, hey, I'm seeing this for the first time. How do they deal with what's going on and being thrown in front of businesses on a day-to-day basis recently?
0: Well, CEOs should ensure that all these things we've been talking about are in play and being sustained. They're not just on a policy paper. So all the contingency thinking, chaos planning, scenario-based training for the leaders, they've got to make sure that's ongoing, okay? because you never know exactly when it's going to happen. So it's, you don't want to wait, and everybody just looks at the CEO, and he's supposed to come up with or she's supposed to come up with a great idea all of a sudden. The whole organization's got to be tuned in. The second thing is you have to build that culture, that all-hands-on-deck, everybody focus, listen, and everybody has to assume intellectual humility so they can open up, become curious, and reinvent a new normal for whatever is facing you in, in whatever category of the business that, that hits you in a negative way. I wrote the second book, Be Visionary, basically to answer your question directly. I mentioned earlier that so many people would come to me for consulting and advice, they were business owners, didn't have a strategy of any kind, not even a, not a dollar goal, nothing. And I would have these conversations with them and I started thinking about it. And I wrote Be Nimble because there was more, I thought, impact on scaling and the dynamics of small businesses that was missing from a lot of books out there. Be Visionary was all about how does a CEO detach themselves and start looking at the horizon, this, this whole subtype leadership in the age of optimization. So if you think about that, why would I have a subtitle like that? Well, it's because optimization and strategy have become like opposing forces in most companies. If you're an optimizer, you're the guy or woman looking at the KPIs every week. How do we do this week? How do we do two days ago? And nobody's looking up over the hedgerow. Nobody's looking down to see whether a train's coming right at them. Or there's a tree just covered in brass rings. They don't see either one. They don't see the threats, and they don't see all the opportunities. I mean, the whole purpose of a CEO, really, is to spend about half their time fully dedicated, like a sonar or radar, constantly seeking threats out there in the deep water, and in the far view. If they have a board, the board's supposed to be doing that with them, and then looking for threats to anticipate and prepare for, either to hit head on or to pivot away from, or opportunities. This is the only way a CEO is ever going to know or a board and a CEO is ever going to know that their competition is getting ready to eat their lunch, that their market's shrinking, that their market's shifting offshore, that their product line is becoming a moot point. How do you know that you're going to wait for all the sales results to come up as a trailing indicator? So you have to do that. You really, and it's almost a lost art. There's a lot of writing out there by others about it, that the over-reliance and focus on shareholder value, short-term gratification, started to kill this about 15, 20 years ago in publicly traded companies. But it's the same human phenomenon in leadership at privately owned companies. People want to know, how much do I make last week? How much do I make next week? Here's the other sad thing of it. The short-term optimization, representation of planning or strategy, it basically says an investment is a bad optimized use of capital. Investment in people, investment in equipment, investment in a whole new line of services And why would you do it? It's a waste of money. And so if you think about it from their point of view, investment is kind of crazy. If you look at it from a strategist's point of view, not investing is absolutely crazy. And so investment in internal investment companies and their own people, their own growth, and their own future has been shrinking radically in the United States for a long time.
1: Yeah, so again, I think it goes back to having the game plan, what you want to do, and then kind of deploying things in a proper fashion for you and the company. And like you said, practicing and being aware of what those market potential pitfalls are having somebody looking out on the horizon to understand and kind of be ahead of it and not react the minute uh, it hits. You should kind of see things coming. So let's talk about, because you mentioned humility just a few minutes ago, and in your book, Be Nimble, you talk about and emphasize humility as a key to success. Can you talk about what you mean by that?
0: Sure. So the easiest explanation is I kind of think of trying to do this every day, but at least when a challenge is, is put in front of you and you're a leader, you have to essentially forget all the arrogance and all the optimism of the victories have given you in the past. At the same time, you have to forget all the defeats and all the emotions, the negative emotions, and the discounting of your value, the discounting of your worth or your intellect that all the defeats nip away at, and chip away at. Because most people come at every problem with this baggage mixed in with their decision-making ability. And part of that is also, if I did really well and I got a bonus or I I got a promotion, and I've used the same three-step formula for the last eight years, and somebody comes up to you and says, hey, we got this issue, and you go, ah, three-step formula. You're not thinking. You're not problem-solving in any intellectual way. You're just throwing the old football play at it. And at some point, it's not going to work. The other thing is, if you don't want to make a leap of faith and try something new and put a team together to, to challenge the status quo, because your boss chewed you out last week or your wife said oh, you're not making enough money or whatever the negatives are you're going to be hesitant and reluctant and kind of demure instead of being bold and forward thinking forward leaning so that's the first part i've kind of broken it into three phases you have to create intellectual humility clear your mind the way i just mentioned of all this baggage positive or negative that allows you to start Taking in information. I suggest that you take in information from sources that you don't normally use. New sources you don't use, experts you don't talk to normally, different people in your company, different leaders than maybe the ones that are assigned to the problem. You need to get a lot of different angles of attack, a lot of different data streams coming at you that are asymmetrical and odd. This is to break you out of your mindset so you don't fall right back into the football. The company might have a football play, right? That gets you to where I call intellectual curiosity. So if you achieve intellectual curiosity, you are now absorbing. Relevant and irrelevant information. But now you're starting to see the world and you start parsing out what's valuable and what isn't valuable. And that gets you to the third phase, which is intellectual creativity. You can't really be creative if you haven't been intellectually humble. You can't be creative if you haven't opened up your aperture and started pulling information from all sources. In the book, I basically say this is something you do as a leader, as a habit every single day. And pretty soon you start acting this way every time something happens. It doesn't have to be an emergency. And if you're a leader that can affect other people that are problem solvers, you try to pass that to them, teach them how to do it. And then they all open their minds. Pretty much everybody's kind of a think tank mode. And you start breaking through paradigms. You start doing things differently and better because you're doing them differently.
1: So humility is the key to unlocking all of that great stuff, it sounds like. Yep. Yeah. So, I mean, you're around leaders all the time, right? And we talk to a lot of leaders all the time. What challenges do you see in developing new leaders
0: today? I think the biggest challenge for me is leadership isn't taught in school. It's not taught at any level of public school. I think when I was young, there were a few times where they would point to historical leaders. And you were supposed to kind of, through osmosis, understand that their leadership impacted a nation or impacted. But they really didn't teach you how to be one. So you never got the blueprint. Then you go into college. And colleges basically either expand your horizons, gain a technical qualification, or in the case of business, you're going into business supposedly to assume a leadership role at a low level and work your way up. They don't teach that in the B schools. They don't teach leadership. Management isn't leadership. Management's just making sure that all the assigned resources of systems, processes, and and the talent, all humming along the way, the processes, and procedures, and the resume said they would, Right. right? Stuff's getting done. But when things fall apart, They can't be fixed with a wrench by a manager, and they haven't been taught leadership, there's a problem. And if there's a leader around above them, the leader has to jump in like a lifeguard because nobody's been taught leadership at that level. And that lifeguard effect happens a lot in small and large organizations. The firefighter, there's only one person that knows how to fight the fire, and that means there's an absence of leadership at every level in the organization because the organization didn't teach it when they came in as new hires. And I'm not making a general comment about this. I'm sure there's thousands of companies that are really dialed into this, but there's a million companies. So it's more prevalent than not. The other factor is when, even in B schools, but when you get into a leadership position and you start moving up, you've never been taught to lead. You don't know what it looks like, smells like, you know how to do it. And maybe get away with not having a big crisis for a while, but the first big crisis just man, it just flummox you. It just knocks you to your knees because you don't have any tools. All the stuff we've been talking about earlier, nobody did for you. You don't even know how to think about it right, let alone be creative or nimble or any of those things. So I think it's all trainable. I think it's all achievable. It's all logical, but nobody makes a commitment there. So yeah, I think there's a leadership crisis in most places in the world because it's not considered like a skill set. It's not a technical skill set that needs to be trained to and taught, measured and improved.
1: Yeah, I agree. And I think that where we talk about this a lot as mentors, really, if you see and you can identify a good leader, you, rather than waiting around for somebody to teach you, go talk to them, let them teach you. If your perception is they're a great leader and they command and can lead a group and lead an organization. Mentors are a great way to get that education that you're not getting necessarily in the four walls of the classroom and could be and can be very helpful. So we're a big proponent of mentors. So I think that's a great opportunity for most folks too. So Marty, it's been a great pleasure having you on the show and every show asking each of our guests the same question, which is what did you do today? Because this is the Midland Money Mindset. What did you do today that brought you joy? And put you in the right mindset for success.
0: Ah, uh, That's a good one. I did two things. I started my day in a hot tub reading a book about scaling a speaking business. Okay. And two hours later, I got on my Peloton and worked out and then jumped off and did some more workout. And That, that prepares me. I'm one of those. The constitution, your health and your fitness and all that is also one of those things that gives you resilience in all things.
1: Listen, I love it. I'm a big Peloton guy. Who's your instructor of choice? I'm going to put you on the spot here. Uh, Matt. Matt Wilpers? Yes. Okay.
0: He's who I did today anyway.
1: Okay. For me, it depends on the day. If I want great music, it's Jen Sherman or Dennis Morton. I uh, align with their musical taste. If I want a really tough workout, I go with Kendall because one of her like heavy metal workouts. And it's like crazy. And it all depends what I want to get out of the day, you know, out of the workout. But yeah, I like Matt as well. He's more of that more traditional bike rider guy. So I'm not a big bike rider. So some of it doesn't translate to me necessarily.
0: Dennis is my second choice. It kind of depends on the length of the workout. Sure, sure. Well,
1: sounds like you had a great start to your day. I appreciate you coming on. So We will have all of your information in the show notes, all the information about your book, Be Nimble. And I know the new book is going to be coming out later this year. So we'll be looking out for that too. And we'll have information about that. But if people want to look for you, find you, connect with you, learn more about you, what's the easiest and best way for them to do that?
0: Easiest way is to go to com. All my articles, access to the books. It's all there.
1: Awesome. It's been a pleasure having you on, Marty. Again, thank you for your service. It's greatly appreciated and make it a great day.
0: All right. Thank you.
1: I want to thank Marty Strong for being a guest on the Midland Money Mindset. In addition to thanking Marty for being a guest, I want to also thank him for the service he has provided to our country. What an honorable thing he has done. Marty has been able to take many of the lessons he learned while serving our country and now using them to help businesses implement leadership practices and scale rapidly. Marty and his books can be found across all social media platforms and all the contact information needed to find him and the resources he has for businesses can be found in the show notes. Thank you for joining us this week on the Midland Money Mindset. Make sure you visit our website at midlandmoneymindset.com and smash the subscribe button so you don't miss a show. We encourage you to help others find our valuable content and please don't keep us a secret. You can also schedule an Is There a Fit call right from our website or by using the link that you'll find in the description section of your podcast player or app. And be sure to join us for our next episode to learn more about getting your mind right when it comes to all things money.